Welcome to the Data-Centric Podcast, where we explore leading practices for becoming a data-first organization. In today's episode, joining me is Brian Platts, the CEO and co-founder of Flurry, a North Carolina-based organization transforming data management and collaboration. Brian was an entrepreneur and executive throughout the early internet days and SaaS boom, having founded the popular Alista Part web development community, along with a host of uh, other successful SaaS companies. Prior to establishing Flurry, Brian co-founded Silk Road Technology, which grew to over 2,000 customers and 500 employees in 12 global offices. Uh, he is now helping companies navigate the complexity of the enterprise data transformation movement. Uh, Brian sits on, uh, on the board of Fuel50 and Odigia and is also an advisor to Fabric Inc. In this episode, Brian shares his experience as a veteran data leader. He discusses the importance of making data a strategic asset building a strong business case for data initiatives and uh, overcoming organizational inertia to become truly data-centric. Brian also covers best practices and key factors in building a data-first culture. We discuss decentralization, knowledge graphs, semantic technologies, and other innovations shaping the data landscape. Get ready to level up your data-centricity knowledge. Here's my conversation with Brian Platz. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Ruben. Let me start by um, asking you to share your story. So tell our audience a bit about your background, um, how you came to be a data-centric thought leader. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how far back to go, but uh, I guess the, uh, the short story is that I was never a very good college student. Started, started a company in college and uh, have really been in enterprise software since. So that's been a little over 25 years. Uh, getting closer to 30 years, I think now, and uh, um, built some good-sized companies over that time, and of course, working on on Flurry now. But uh, one of the, I guess, main challenges I have experienced uh, multiple times before Flurry was just the um, challenge of data and product integration. So my last company was all around human resources, human resources data. Not only did we acquire a number of companies, but of course, we were always challenged to integrate with our clients' systems, whether that's uh, PeopleSoft or a Workday. Um, and um, uh, while a lot of product work uh, does involve that user experience and involves sort of, you know, solving workflows for individual users, getting products to work in an enterprise setting uh, almost always comes down to data integration challenges. So, you know, I, I've spent many years focused on that and uh, saw some opportunities and some exciting things happening in the market right around when we were starting uh, Flurry that um, made me make the decision that, hey, I want to go see if I can solve some of these problems at a more fundamental level uh, as opposed to kind of putting patches on top of, you know, existing products and their challenges. Yes. So uh, what's the story behind founding Flurry? Yeah, so Flip and I, uh, Flip is uh, Flip and I have been together now for three companies, uh, so a little over to, uh, about twenty years together. Um, when we started Flurry, we had recently exited um, our last company, Silk Road Technology, which is still going today. It's the human resources kind of software as a service um, uh, company. And uh, at that time, we were already thinking about how do we solve some of these data challenges we continually deal with in a more fundamental level. 
it just felt like it was time. There was a lot of changing around data. Um, data was becoming increasingly important to organizations. And, you know, we're on this trend where, you know, we see if, if it hasn't eclipsed it already, it's close, where value comes from buying apps and sort of data sits as the third tier you know, in that to the point where those lines in the value crosses and data becomes the most important thing and the app actually starts to become less important or at least less differentiated. Um, so we saw that kind of trend line going and um, we also got really interested at that time, you know, Bitcoin was just becoming a thing and some of the decentralization and I've always been very involved and interested in distributed computing. And of course, decentralized computing started to become the next challenge to think about after that. So all of these sort of things came together and said, boy, I, I think we can really reinvent the database. Um, uh, and uh, so that's what we set out to do. Nice, nice. So uh, Brian, what's your definition of data centricity? I uh, partially gave it already. It's it's where data is recognized as the most valuable asset within IT. And the focus is around uh, having data that can be autonomous even. That's a word we've been using quite a bit, autonomous data. Um, but data that has everything around it that provides and maximizes the value you can get out of it. And users of data, which are increasingly, you know, we say apps uh, kind of historically, I think now we're, we're increasingly agents, right, are the consumers of data. They, they come to the data. Um, and so right now, I think the, you know, the tangible sort of switch, and of course, we're not quite here at the switch yet, but I see it coming is right now we send our data to the app, right? If I'm a user of salesforce.com or Workday or whatever the, the SaaS app is, you go there, you type in your data, you're sending your data to the app. And, um, you know, this transition will be official in my mind when the opposite happens. You actually send your app to the data. And of course, we're seeing that already in like algorithms and machine learning just because it's so expensive and difficult to move, you know, that much data to them. Um, but we're going to see it in apps too. You know, I see uh, a Salesforce-like app that does CRM that probably understands maybe a handful of ontologies for managing customer data because uh, not everyone's ever going to agree on one ontology. And it's going to become, it's going to be able to come and run as an agent wherever your data sits and you can maintain your data. You're not sending it to anyone. You always have security. Um, so that's, uh, you know, Data centricity is a pretty big concept, but I think that's the tangible thing that we'll see when it is officially, you know, reach the, the tipping point when it's officially happened. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, what do you think are the reasons that uh, the majority of enterprises have ended up being app-centric today? Um, well, I think it goes back to where, where's the value? And of course things, you know, these are like, uh, big ships, they take a while to turn, but historically, where's the value been? And the value for technology has been in automating business processes. You know, I used to have people manually creating invoices. Now I have software to do it. I used to, you know, um, uh, all these historical sort of things that applications 
their main focus was to automate business processes. And so that's where the value came from. I mean, and that makes a lot of sense. And that's been the world we've been living in for, you know, many decades now. Uh, the thing that's starting to change is that, um, of course, cloud computing software as a service has made these apps more accessible to folks. And the infrastructure is almost cookie cutter now. And, and I don't want to denigrate sort of creating a new SaaS app, but all the pieces are there to build a new SaaS app really quickly, meaning that your ability to differentiate, for one, it's incredibly accessible, incredibly cheap. And if you want to build this stuff on your own or create a company, your ability to differentiate is, is very low. And then the organizations using this, the ability for them to differentiate is very low because all their competitors have it. Um, so that is, uh, why we've been focused on apps because it's made the most sense. That's where the value has come from. Um, but times are changing, right? So, so this is, uh, kind of where we're seeing some of these shifts happen. Let's say, um, if you were to build an organization from ground up, um, in today's world, what steps would you take to make sure that your org becomes and stays data centric? From day one. Yeah, it's going to actually still be hard to do that from day one, because if you're, if you're building an organization from the ground up, you are going to need things like a financial system. You're going to need a CRM. You're going to need all the basic infrastructure. And those are all still very app centric, right? We, we don't have a um, great data centric versions of that. Although I would encourage and invite anyone to start building those and start building those around a, uh, of course, I'm very um, uh, passionate about knowledge graphs and semantic web technologies to be able to do this, but start to build those around those, that fundamental data model. Um, because I think that is when it's gonna become really easy. But for everything outside of your kind of back office um, infrastructure, I think there's the opportunity to start um, thinking about these technologies from day one and start to um, uh, imagine how you're going to benefit from uh, storing data in a more strategic way. So you might not be able to buy a CRM off the shelf that's truly data-centric yet today, um, but anything you're building internally, certainly you can do this for. Um, and I think we're getting more and more um, tools and technology. Certainly, we've introduced uh, a big one as a complement to our data management technology that can automate taking some of that app-centric data and moving it into uh, a knowledge graph format. And I think as, as we have more of those, even if you are app-centric in some of these purchases you have to make to start a business, you'll have more technologies that can automatically convert that data and be data centric. So that would, so, you know, um, long way around answering your question. Um, one, I would take anything I'm building from scratch and start with a data centric viewpoint. Secondly, I would investigate technologies that can automate conversion of app centric data into data centric data um, uh, uh, for me. And that's how I would look at uh, starting. Yeah. What would those technologies be? Well, there aren't a ton of them yet. Um, I mentioned that, you know, we have one. And of course, I, I don't want to talk um, too much about it unless you ask me 
uh, to, but we're yeah. focused well, we're, on we're using... We're definitely going to talk about Flurry. <laughs> okay, well, um, so uh, lots of times today, the conversion of sort of app data, traditional data, relational database data, however you may say it, um, into a more strategic format is, is happening via scripting. And it's usually happening via a Python script. And, you know, maybe you have a... Uh, ETL-like tool that automates some of those conversions. But, of course, the challenge is, is that data changes over time. So those Python scripts need to be constantly updated. Um, and, of course, people move in and out of organizations, some of which knew how that Python worked and some now which don't. So you have new people that need to maintain them. And you need to be very, it's expensive, I guess, is the result. It's expensive and slow doing this. Over time, anyway, doing it, you know, as a one-time thing might be manageable, but really having to build and maintain this over many years is very expensive. So our focus is around um, teaching machines how to discover different um, uh, classes of data and uh, leveraging that inherent knowledge you can build into a machine, the smarts you can build in a machine to make it scalable over time, even with additional new data sources coming in, et cetera. Um, so I think we, we have, you know, there's AIs in the press, obviously a lot right now, but we've come far enough with AI that we can actually use it to teach it patterns like this and have it do a lot of this work for us and have us main, have it maintain it for us. So that's certainly our approach to it. Um, but we're also looking at solving this problem for, um, organizations that have a lot of legacy data. So it makes a lot of sense there. If you only have one or two pieces of the legacy data because you were able to start with a more data-centric viewpoint in your organization, um, you know, maybe you can get away with maintaining a couple Python scripts, you know, to kind of do that work over time. Uh, Brian, do you think a time will come when even uh, new organizations start thinking about ontology and semantics from, from the get-go, from day one? Like yeah. a semantic layer or a semantic model would be something that you would consider as part of your organizational design. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, what's going to be the tipping point? It's going to be, um, you know, uh, is folks like chief data officers become uh, better versed in the strategic advantages that this data format can bring them. Uh, we're seeing more and more chief data officers now. And of course, they're, they're, you know, we didn't see them that long ago. They're building up that knowledge now. They're building up some of this expertise. So as these people come into new organizations, that's what they're going to be telling people to do. So that's going to be a transition, of course. It's, it's not happening in volume yet, but it is happening. Um, we're also seeing regulation. And I think this is going to increasingly be a pull into sort of knowledge graphs. So uh, we're seeing this on the pharmaceutical side with things like IDMP, which is, you know, um, potentially going to be a requirement for people to submit data to regulators. Uh, of course, anywhere where data sharing is involved is going to be a big driver for things like knowledge graphs. Um, we're seeing uh, Customs and Border Patrol exploring verifiable credentials, which is a cryptographic proof around JSON-LD, which is RDF. Uh, is a way of proving um, supply chain ahead of products coming into the United States. So, you know, should they continue that effort and eventually mandate that products coming in, you know, at ports 
have these kind of traceable credentials of where they came from and assuming they continue to evaluate verifiable credential standards, all of a sudden, if you want to ship goods into the U.S., you have to at least know something about knowledge graphs because the way you're going to prove how the products got your data were in there. So I think regulation um, is going to end up playing a big uh, part in some of this push. So we have a few converging factors that, um, you know, to me, this is, um, we're getting close to that tipping point. Um, yeah, so I think we're close. Yeah, I think we'll end up at some point this being a very standard behavior for startups and new companies. Like you said, like having a CRM today is pretty standard step. So people are going to think about a semantic model and maybe they'll be able to even uh, take bits and pieces of um, like semantic models that are all, that already exist that apply to certain um, business lines or certain uh, patterns in business and concoct a new business model from them. Absolutely. And, and who doesn't want to be able to have good data, data that you can extract more insights about, more predictions about? Um, I mean, no one wouldn't want that, right? And, and of course, it's such an immense challenge for organizations, uh, big and small, to have this today. So, so the benefit's obvious. The, um, of course, the transition is, I, I keep using that word transition because these are transitions that happen over time. Obviously, semantic web standards have been around for a very long time. Um, but technically, the standards around the World Wide Web, you know, were around for, what, 20, 30 years before, you know, they really took off as well. So, um, yeah, it takes a while, but um, absolutely, who wouldn't want that? Yeah. Well, uh, what's your take on the fair data principles? Um, I think that, uh, uh, I mean, I think they're right on. So, but it, it came out of the um, research space, the kind of fair moniker, um, more so than enterprise. But um, who, what enterprise wouldn't want, you know, those same characteristics around their uh, data? Um, we extend it a little bit when we talk about fair, just to play off of that term. Um, and I'm guessing a lot of your audience has probably never heard that term, but I'm sure some have. Um, we extend it by saying, uh, fairest, <laughs> uh, when we talk about it at Flurry, because a big focus of our knowledge graph is being, um, immutable and provable, um, and being able to embed security into the data model. Um, so actually permissions policy directly into the data tier, because we think that's going to be important if you're going to be very data centric. Um, if data is the center of the universe, it means that you're going to have to have policy and permissions in the data, not in the app, which is where uh, almost exclusively exists today. So when we say fairest, we're extending that with the S, the secure and T is uh, trusted. Um, uh, components of the data but but yeah big fan um in the dod they have come out with the moniker of uh voltis v-a-u-l-t-i-s which is effectively the same concept as is fair um but um yeah um good stuff yeah uh let's talk a bit about flurry um tell me what are um the biggest competitive dif uh, differentiators for uh, your knowledge graph platform? 
Yeah, I brought up a couple of them. So, you know, one is that uh, uh, for most knowledge graphs are designed and used as analytics platforms. Um, if we're going to become more and more data centric, then of course the ultimate goal is we want this knowledge graph to be used as an operational database. Uh, we want it to be the system of record. And Flurry is built from the ground up with that in mind. In fact, there's probably more usage of Flurry where it is a system of record than usage of Flurry where it's a pure analytics. Um, just because there's, there's a lot of vendors out there focused on the analytics use case. They've been around for a long time. You know, if that's what someone's looking to do, they have a lot of choices. But if they really want to make this an operational database uh, and be a system of record, uh, those choices dwindle down. Not that you can't sort of uh, do some of this with the other databases. They just weren't, you know, designed in their core to uh, be fault tolerant and redundant and the types of things that operational databases really need. Um, so that's certainly one. Uh, the other big differentiator that I'd focus on is this notion of uh, zero trust and this idea that you have to um, be able to embed security and policy into the data. And so with Flurry, um, when you connect to a Flurry database, unless it's kind of set up in what we call open mode, which is more like an old traditional database, you just have it open to your app to issue queries and do whatever, um, you can run it like that. But um, by default, it's in a zero trust mode where every interaction with it has to be performed by an identity. And the way we can get identity is pretty varied. Anything from you know cryptographically signing queries and transactions to delegating to a third party sort of identity management system whatever the case may be, but every interaction happens as a user. That user might be a machine, it might be a person, doesn't matter. And policy is defined to, um, in the way we do this policy, I, I gets pretty technical, but I think it's very sophisticated. Policy is defined such that you can either see and or update data or you can't. Um, but when you connect and you issue a query, you're querying a virtual database, not the real database a virtual database that only has the triples in it, you have permission to see. So you can query to your heart's content. You can do whatever you want. You're never going to see data you don't have permission to see. And typically trying to embed security into data, especially for machines, is going to be done in an API layer where you're writing security into all your API calls. With Flurry, you don't have to do any of that. In fact, you don't even really need API calls anymore because... Uh, you have a wonderful API language. It's called a query. You can get whatever data you want. You can query for whatever. If you change your mind or your app has a new version and it needs an extra field, it can just modify its query that it needs. Or typically with an API, you have to go in and like build a new API or modify and version that API to be able to do that. Um, the other issue, of course, with building APIs for data access is that... Um, it's expensive to maintain them, and a lot of people don't budget properly for that expense. As we mentioned before with the scripts, data changes over time, security rules changes over time. All of this logic is written in code into some API layer, and someone needs to go and, and maintain and fix that. And partially for this reason, in fact, Akamai just came out with a report now that said all corporate, or they were, it was focused on financial services. All hacking attempts are... Uh, of all hacking attempts, over 70% are now focused on APIs. 
And of course, hackers go where they know the, the breaches and the vulnerabilities are. And it's not that the API was vulnerable when it was first built. It's just over time, they're not properly maintained. They become vulnerable. So that's another key thing is like, how do we secure the data and allow you to just query in the data um, and uh, have a controlled policy? And then the last part that we consider as part of this kind of security is the immutability and provability of data over time. And in fact, we allow you to easily query at any moment in time in the past. You could reproduce query results. There are just a lot of different benefits uh, that come to that. Um, there's a lot of other cool features we have. Maybe we'll talk about some of them, but um, those would be areas that, at least to my knowledge, no other knowledge graph platform has as a capability or a focus. Yeah, I especially love the time dimension feature when I first discovered you guys. Um, it uh, I, I can see so many use cases where that can be used. Again, not, not diminishing the security aspects and policy aspects, also super important. Anything you want to do, like in any sensitive industry, um, uh, like for an enterprise platform, you're going to need them. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. If you, yeah, I'll say something about time because its benefits become, um, you just keep, it, it's the gift that keeps giving once you have it. You never want to give it back. But, um, you know, I mentioned early on that we had a strong interest in decentralization. And as we're looking to, uh, have the ability of querying data across decentralized data sources without, you know, what do we have to do today to do that? We have to copy and paste those into a data lake or data warehouse. You know, our view is those technologies become less needed over time if you can query across a virtualized data network. Um, but how can you really do that if you can't lock in time? Because every single data source is changing under your feet, if you will. How can you reproduce results? How can you do anything? So locking in time was always very important for us. So every query you issue, you are always issuing as of a moment in time. Of course, if you don't specify it, we assume that you probably want the most recent version of time. So that's what we default to. But every moment in time is instantly available. Um, but the gift that keeps giving is that, you know, Everyone's run into an issue where they um, produced a report for, you know, the executives or someone uh, last week, and now they want to tweak to it. And now you're trying to reproduce a report, but you're getting completely different answers or the information's changing. Well, here you can actually issue the query to that exact moment in time and exactly reproduce that original data. Or the situation where a integration script failed in the middle of the night, and now it works. You know, this has happened uh, probably hundreds of times over my career where you see like something failed, but now it works. We don't know why it failed. We don't know how it failed. Well, if you can reproduce the data that existed at that exact moment in time, you can actually figure it out. Um, there's just so many benefits you you start getting with time travel uh, once you have it. But yeah, it's uh, um, it's a very valuable feature. 100% agree. Um, <clears throat> so Brian, uh, you work, um, you enable data centricity for many different companies. I, uh, I wanted to ask you actually maybe two questions in one. First, I, I wanted to ask you about the top three approaches that work the most and maybe top three things that don't work for companies that uh, want to be uh, data centric, right? <laughs> well. Yeah, I guess I can maybe reflect on a few experiences, but, you know, I think every circumstance, of course, has its unique characteristics. So I wouldn't uh, 
uh, say anything will or wouldn't work for for any particular group. Um, but you know, I think that um, first and foremost, um, there has to be a business case. Uh, things that don't have a business case often end up falling, you know, or or not making its way through conclusion. And especially if uh, knowledge graphs and being data centric is brand new into an organization, it means that there's going to be some challengers to that new approach. And without that kind of business case to fall back on, it's very often difficult to get through that whole process. It makes it more difficult to get through that entire process. So having a business case, um, I like, uh, you know, contrarian to a lot of people, I think it's a, um, most of the time the opportunity is to start small and grow. You know, I, I certainly hear a number of people saying that you need to sort of model the whole business, otherwise you'll, you'll never really realize the value. And I, you know, there's, a, there's a, some validity that, yes, you probably won't realize the whole value until then, but um, it's hard for organizations to make that big of a change and invest in that big of a change. And it can also take a very long time which I guess is good if you're the one being contracted to do it all. Uh, but um, that's where things often lose their momentum is if you can't produce results quickly, especially now. You know, 20 years ago, you could spend two years to produce results. Now we have, you know, continuous integration, continuous build on applications. We're expecting new things to appear in a day or in a week. Um, and you sort of need to live in that reality and to only live in that rea and to live in that reality to me means you need to focus on a very specific, you know, domain within your business that you're going to attack this problem that again is attached to a business case. Um, so, um, you know, uh, those are the things that come to mind. I guess they're, they probably fit in both your do's and your don'ts simultaneously, uh, by their nature, but, uh, yeah. Uh, what uh, what can you say about um, some political or people organizational aspects of um, implementing a change, a transition towards data centricity? Well, I think that um, one thing that I've gotten uh, more attuned to later in my career is the people side of change. And I think as technologists, or data people, whatever the case may be, we tend to focus on, of course, the um, implementation of the technology change um, because that's tangible to us. It's easy to us. It's obvious to think, you know, we can see exactly, you know, these are the steps I need to take and I get here. Um, but without having a, and we develop a plan for that. Um, so, you know, I think um, the people side is where I see a lot of projects fail the um, of change. And I think it's important to have a plan for the people side of your change. Um, there's a lot of different ways to look at the people side of changes. Um, there's a lot of different probably research and Googling people can find out there. Um, I've been introduced, and, and I believe it's a good framework, to the ADKAR framework, A-D-K-A-R, I'm not exactly sure where it originated, but I think that if anyone hasn't looked at sort of a people change process to a technology change, that's at least one place I would look. I, I think that's a good model, but again, there's others out there. Um, but yeah, um, I think the people change is um, 
to not paid attention to enough and often where things can go astray. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. Uh, Brian, what's the most important advice you would give to a digital leader who wants to advance data centricity in their organization today? Um, I think identifying a high value use case, you know, if, um, a high value use cases, lots of times that get attention in an organization, um, involve things that can produce more revenue. Um, uh, there are some things where you can, uh, operational changes where you can save a lot of cost. I mean, obviously I wouldn't discount those, uh, but lots of times there's more moving parts than that. So if you can identify a use case where you're looking at, for example, customers and customer behavior, customer data, and, um, help and get the endorsement of the revenue generating side of your business, your sales team, et cetera, on insights that you can derive that can, um, further facilitate that, I think that there's no bigger win you can get to kind of jumpstart in an organization than that one. Um, the other side that becomes relatively easier than a kind of more operational change is going to be regulatory. So obviously if regulators or, you know, you're dealing with uh, uh, fraud detection or anti-money laundering and financial services or things like this that become sort of necessary components that are very data involved. Um, those are obviously places where you can also have good impact, but, um, but yeah, anything revenue generating, I think is a great way to prove out the concepts. And once you prove out the concepts, of course, moving them into other areas of the business starts to become a lot easier, um, from that point. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> perhaps my last question, how do you, um, uh make executive level people, how do you make decision makers perceive this uh, world of information life cycles that can be managed apart from technology life cycles? How do you uh, sort of incept the idea of managing information apart from technology? Um, I think it's becoming easier to do that. Um, you know, it's still a challenge. I think ultimately you are reliant on the leader inside that business being a champion and, um, having what they need, because you're not going to, you know, necessarily expect say the CFO who ultimately needs to give budgetary approval or the CEO to be experts in this field. You need someone inside the business that is able to champion that effectively. Um, I mentioned my last company, we sold HR software and you could imagine, you know, there's a pretty broad spectrum of HR leaders. Some are immensely strategic, have a ton of credibility. Others are immensely strategic, don't have that much credibility in their organizations. Um, and then of course there's, you know, some that, that, uh, aren't that strategic are much more tactical, but you could really look across that and say, okay, how effective is deploying these, the change and the, the new techniques and the advantages of technology into the organization. And lots of times you could kind of come back to that leader in the company and how effective they were in articulating the value to the rest of the executives in the organization. And, and I think the same thing here applies, right? If, if you don't have a chief data officer or a CIO or CTO, or, you know, um, whatever the role may be, who's, um, can, can be really effective in, in, uh, um, in expressing the ROI that this approach is going to have for the business, then it's going to be tough to, you know, 
force that change. And the change is going to be most effective if it's a top-down mandate. You know, bottom-up change is also uh, super exciting, and I love it when I see that, when someone inside the organization, you know, builds something and kind of takes it uh, up the chain, if you will, and say, hey, look what I have. And, and seeing those things become viral and spread to the organization, um, those to me are the most exciting ones when you see that kind of viral adoption go up. Um, but those don't happen all the time. The most effective are top-down mandates, and you need that champion. Yeah. Uh, Brian, is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience? Boy, nothing comes to mind. We've covered a lot of good things. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to ask? <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much for your insi uh, insights and for sharing your experience. I'm sure a lot of people will find this super interesting. And thank you for doing an amazing job with Flurry. Uh, the, uh, the world definitely needs this kind of technology. I'm a big fan, my, uh, fan myself. And um, wishing you good luck with your business. We'd like to see you guys grow and enable a lot more organizations to become data centric. Thank you so okay. much. Thanks, Ruben. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the data centric podcast. Be sure to check out the links in the description for more information and resources mentioned in this episode. And if you're looking to really accelerate your data centric journey, check out my online course, the data centric executive, go to datacentricexecutive.com and use the coupon code podcast 20 to get 20% off. Tune in next week as we continue exploring the world of data centricity together.